All right, in this Profcast, we are going to tackle for Management 300 questions around leadership, performance, and productivity. So we got a lot of them here, so this one might be a little bit longer, but they're really great questions, and I look forward to tackling them with you. The first question is, my burning question this week is, what do you recommend for effective methods of making studying unique and memorable? So a couple of things. One is um, trying to come up with examples or anecdotes from your own world. So you see this in a lot of the assignments that I create at both the 100 and 200 levels, as well as even our assignment, Gems, Light Bulbs, and Burning Questions. The reason why I do light bulbs and gems is because you're actually doing a form of studying in that because what makes that effective is you've personalized it. You've made it about you. You've made it something that is meaningful in your world. So when that happens, then um, what it does is it creates a heuristic or a mental model that, um, that then is something that sticks better with you. So stories are sticky and then personal stories are even stickier. So one of the things I would do is as you're, um, you know, studying and whatnot, try to think of ways that it can be personal to you. If it's something so novel that you've never had an experience or you can't um, create some sort of um, example out of that, then a uh, an example that you would find to be uh, relevant and, and something that would stick with you. So perhaps it's with a company that you're fond of or um, a, an experience in uh, or an article you read and, and something where a narrative is there. So I think those are some of the big things that you can do from there. Um, the other thing is don't go into just highlight mode on your books and whatnot, because that highlighting just gives you kind of an illusionary in the moment feel of like, oh, I'm going to remember this. But really what highlights are for are to quickly identify and find information. It's not to recall information um, in a reference guide. So you're going to be better served by, by um, taking notes in a way that's more reflective. And what did you learn from that? Uh, content as well. What are your takeaways? So this whole activity that we do with gems, light bulbs, and burning questions is a um, is rooted in that learning science. Next, our leader asks, my burning question would be, how do you discipline yourself to stay in the right direction versus getting distracted on other things that come along? Sometimes I feel that there is so much going on, I easily get sidetracked or just can't seem to focus. So the reality is you're, uh, that's while you're feeling that that's also a reality. Um, recently there was an article about, uh, what, what I think it was Adam Grant or whoever the author was, uh, said that it's like time confetti. You've got text, you've got emails, you've got all these little things that are end up being time sucks and they're constantly pulling at your attention strings. And so, um, one of the things that it's not, it does take some self-discipline and self-regulation to put those off. Um, but what we, so one thing is to acknowledge it, that there are all these other um, time, you know, things that are competing for your time and your attention. And really the idea too, that we struggle with this idea of multitasking. So even having like multiple uh, applications open on your screen as you're trying to work and whatnot. So what, what, one thing is is to establish just that. What is your one thing? And um, you know, we had a blink earlier about that. And scheduling that deep work 
okay? And time and creating a time block where you're just going to focus on that one thing and then um, building in, uh, I think they call it in the one thing, your bunker, your bunker space. So, you know, no devices or um, you set, you know, you can get certain things that will block um, your ability to access other things. And so putting some barriers to make it more difficult for you to get to the, the confetti or have that being an interruption for you is, is key. Now on the other side of this is that you also want to schedule some time for quote unquote deep fun or deep relaxation where you're not working or thinking about work and you can turn that off. So it's really kind of some of those time blocks are, are a great way to, um, to get going on that. So it doesn't take so much of that willpower and that discipline to do that. Now the, the discipline part is going to be just starting to build in those habits. And um, one thing I would do is start just visioning out what does that bunker space look like for you and what does it require and thinking about how exciting and fun it would be to get those things done and, and to kind of feel like you're owning your productivity that those things can then spark a little bit of motivation and inspiration to get you going in the right direction. All right. The next question is, uh, gives us a little bit of context. And the person says, I'm very organized, disciplined, and analytical. I perform many habits to be a productive person. Though I do consider myself to be a productive person, I struggle with procrastination. This week, I learned an interesting term, creative procrastination. Though the term is new to me, I can't help but feel like I use creative procrastination procrastination always but where is the line between creative procrastination and just plain old procrastination i don't know if it's it's so much a line but it's um an understanding and it comes back to emotional intelligence and some self-awareness about your behaviors and what incites your optimal performance so with creative procrastination it's this idea or productive pro procrastination it's where um that that uh, stressor of time and deadline come into play and that kicks you into, all right, I just got to go and get it done. Um, the, the reason, one of the reasons as you heard and, and has been some research on this of why we procrastinate is it's not necessarily that we're poor time managers. It's one, we're a poor predictor of how much time something is going to take, especially if it's new or novel. And then number two is the emotion associated with it. The, the, um, the pain or the anxiety of doing that work is really where um, our first blockade is of getting something done. So where I would say that when it starts to become a detriment is when you um, misquote or misestimate the amount of time that something is going to take. And then all of a sudden you're at, up at a deadline and though while you're in a creative space, um, you've, you've missed the opportunity to turn in like a best quality work or an optimal um, piece of work. Uh, so those would be some things that I would be thinking about when it comes to procrastination versus productive procrastination or creative pro procrastination. Then our next question that comes to us is, why do we think we are our worst enemy, but when most people work from home, have a business, they tend to be more productive? <clears throat> I think a lot of times we engage in this idea of ideal self-comparison. And we start to draw in all these conclusions, but there are so many variables at play within um, within an individual, and the context matters. Um, you know, for for example, myself, uh, I can kind of reflect on this. I've been struggling with the work at home and my own productivity, but 
I think part of the challenge is, you know, so much time and so much, uh, on the, on the computer and, and isolation, you know, if I think about when I would work at the college you know, on campus, I would get up and I would talk to colleagues and I would go teach a class and I come back and I get reset and it would break up the, the day. Um, here it's all computer all the time. And I find myself not as, um, fast as I used to be. The other thing is, you know, um, life, life changes and there's different seasons. So I, I think back to when I first started at the college 10 years ago, I was single, I didn't have kids and I could really focus in on just the college. It was kind of my, my major priority in my life, but now there's competing priorities in my life. Like many of you have with, with work and, and school and, um, family and, and commitments there. And so you're trying to balance all those things out. So then if you start to compare yourself to somebody else um, who's in this, you know, who you perceive to be in the same situation as you, there are all these other variables that aren't being taken into to, um, to play. So this is where it says, you know, what can I do? Um, it's about setting realistic expectations and standards, and it's um, playing the best game that you can with the time and resources you have available. That's that commitment to excellence that we, we talk about and we look for. Then we have somebody that's asking us about, um, they say that they're, they're still not sure they see the difference between stress and burnout. At what point is stress considered burnout? Is it possible to come back from burnout at work or is a job career change really the best way? So, um, there, it's not like there's a, um, a classic definition of this. So stress is part of burnout. So I think that's the first thing that we need to acknowledge. So, um, and there are different types of stress. There's use stress, which is a healthy kind of um, stress when you're taking on a new challenge and it's a little scary and whatnot, but it's exciting and the work is meaningful and, and you want to engage in it. And then there's distress where you're feeling anxiety and panic and fear, um, and doubt, and, and that's the negative type of stress or overwhelmed and so what the burnout component is, is that amplified to the point where you don't necessarily see the other side of the tunnel. And then what happens is this uh, host of other symptoms such as anxiety, um, depression, uh, apathy, um, disconnecting, you know, in, uh, in, in service related jobs, you stop, stop treating people or customers as people, you start treating them as numbers or case files or, or this, that, or the other thing. So the, um, the piece of that is that stress can, is oftentimes a, uh, predeterminant to getting to burnout and it's more, the burnout comes from, if you think about it, like the, um, a, a candle is that you're burning that candle and at some point it's so the candle runs out and that's where you've burnt out. Um, and then is it possible to come back from burnout at work? Yes, it is. And, and I say that from firsthand experience. Um, I've been going through some burnout in the last two years uh, myself, and it is not a great place to be. It is a very, um, very tough place to be. And I don't know if it's, I, I don't feel like I need a job or a career change to do that. I think some people do need that, but I think you have to change the structure and the dynamics and the expectations and the standards and you need to ask for help and support to do that and that would be the one of the triggers for me is if you did reach out and, and try to get that help and support and whatnot did it come 
And is the organization supportive of that? And are they willing to do that? And if it's not that, then I would say it's not maybe so much a job or career change. It could be an organizational environment uh, change. But, you you know, it's really tough to I think you can sometimes get away with just kind of high tide, low tide in coming out of burnout. But I think it's you're going to be more effective and more long term sustaining if you um work with your employer or your team or your coworkers or whoever it may be to get the support systems that you need to work your way through the burnout and get onto the other side of it. But it is, um, takes a lot out of you. I can tell that I can tell you that from personal experience and it is a, um, it is not something that it's something that I would always want to be there to help and support a student or a coworker or a colleague or anybody through, um, it, because it's, it's, I, I just, the empathy and the compassion that I have for people that are experiencing it is it's, it's tough. So that would be some of my, um, my thoughts on that one. So moving on to the next question, this person writes, my question would be, we always try to do critical thinking, but sometimes, uh, cannot dive deeper than the surface. What are some tips and tricks where we can help understand how critical thinking really works? And I get, I got this question from listening to one of our LinkedIn videos from the module. All right. So one of the really helpful tools that I, I like to use when we're looking at critical or uh, strategic, strategic thinking is the five why exercise. So when you're at that surface level, then it's about, well, why is it this way? And then going again, well, why is it this way? And well, why is it this way? And so you do that why five times. And that will help you kind of push yourself to, to some next levels. Um, the other thing is if you go back to the blink we had from the Heath brothers on decision-making called decisive, their wrap model where um, we widen our options, we reality check, um, we gain some perspective and attain some distance from, from things. That model are all a set of tools that you can use to help you um, with your critical thinking. For example, widening your options. Oftentimes we get into this either or thinking. So it's a binary decision um, versus an and decision or or what if decision and um, it, trying to expand our options. So example, if it's yes, no, um, what if it's yes to part of this and no to the other part of it? Or what if it's something else? So trying to be able to look at things more um, broad and figuring out, do, can we zoom in? Can we zoom out? There's the 10, 10, 10 exercise where it's, how am I going to feel about this decision? Um, 10 minutes from now, you know, 10 months from now, uh, 10 years from now, pick, pick your 10. But the idea is looking at it from um, different points of view and different periods of time. Now, we're not great at predicting the future. So I'm not saying that you would, um, you know, that you'll know those things, but what it does is it shifts your mind into thinking at it from a different angle. And that in itself is the critical thinking part is that you're thinking about it from multiple perspectives and engaging with the decision or the variables in different ways to try to come up with um, an optimal conclusion or a decision that is well justified and that you have thought through from a number of different perspectives. Along those same lines, our next question is, so I've been learning about critical thinking since I first started college. I still don't quite understand how it works. Thinking outside of the box? Um, not necessarily thinking outside of the box. It's to recognize that 
if you were in the box, you could be on the floor of the box. You could be on the wall of the box. You could be on the top of the box. You could be inside the box, outside the box. There are a lot of different angles from it. And so what critical thinking is, is to examine things wholly and to think about them from, again, a number of different angles or perspectives and um, not just necessarily going with the first thought or stopping before you get to something um, to, to uh, letting just a problem stop you in your tracks there. It's to try to kind of push through to the other side. And the reason why it becomes so important in, um, in college and in education in the world of work and why um, we have put more emphasis on that is because that's what employers are telling us they um, are looking for from employees is they want better critical thinking. Um, and what that starts to look like is showing up to the job, having someone just tell you what to do, and then you just doing it. That may not be, that may have worked in kind of an older um, industry model where, you know, you had the one job and you just kind of did this rote thing over and over again. But today the world of, of work and the world of business is more complex and you're making a lot of decisions and you're engaging with a lot of people. And so your ability not necessarily to be told all the time what to do, but to kind of figure it out. That's another um, element of what I think employers are looking for is the ability to problem solve. And to, to solve a problem, you've got to think about it from multi-dimensions. And that's the critical thinking element is to, to examine something critically and to analyze it and to, um, to come up with a myriad of solutions and then determine what's the best approach to go through. So I think that's probably a better kind of more long form description of, of what is meant by critical thinking. So hopefully that will help you a little bit in, in understanding that construct. All right. So this next question was, um, was a candid question. And I think it's a, um, a good challenge question for us to, to dissect. I even told the person that in their comments that it was a little bit of a gut punch, but um, I'll do my best to tackle this one. Uh, it says, how to be a leader for yourself and someone if it was how we don't need a leader. So my question is, why is this class needed if we could go by with or without formal leadership in the future? Well, I think that um, our focus is not just on this idea of you becoming a formal or um, formal leader. While that is a pathway, it's not necessarily the pathway. I think part of this is with the idea of individual contributors is that each of you must become a leader. And you, whether that's leading a function or a people, um, at the end of the day, you also have to lead yourself. And therefore, um, what we need to have is this leadership development so that you understand the some of the components that create leadership. And um, that can be things such as, you know, the self-awareness and the emotional intelligence and the ideas of concepts like trust and vulnerability and uh, getting collective results and productivity. So my challenge back to, to somebody who said, well, why do we need this class is think about potentially the things that you were made aware of, aware of the things that you didn't know, or that you may have been, you may have had a sense of awareness, but you didn't have the language to talk about it. That's where the learning comes in. And then the next level of that, the deeper learning becomes, how do you use it? And where do you want to use it? And what does that 
um, where can you recognize that in the world and leverage it to get better results? So the reason why we do leadership development in, in the course and learn about strengths and emotional intelligence and all the content that we've, we've consumed through the quarter is not necessarily to make you into a formal leader. While you may apply a lot of these concepts into a formal leadership role is that no matter what you can lead and you can be a leader. Um, and that could even be leading yourself or leading your family or uh, leading a process. And so that's why we go through the course and that's why it's content. Um, and if you, you know, if we read through people's gems and light bulbs, there's a lot of shiny gems that are popping up and a lot of aha moments that people are walking away with. And the hope is that you utilize these to make your, your life better, make the world better. Um, and that in itself is leadership. And I think we can always use more of that. Then the last question is, well, short is, is a big question and it's what is the number one characteristic of an exceptional leader? Oh man, I, I honestly, I don't know if I can, if I can come up with one characteristic, um, but perhaps I can say that emotional intelligence is the characteristic that I would lean into if uh, I were to be asked about, you know, what if you could only do one thing to help a person develop, what would it be? I would say focus on emotional intelligence um, because there's a level of continuous learning that comes in there around the key domains of awareness, uh, self-regulation, you know, empathy, manage, self-management, um, social awareness, relationship management. So it's, it's this multifaceted domain. And I think just um, as the world of work is continuing to evolve, this component of um, being able to get people to um, play roles and parts and come together for collective results, whether it's in person or virtually, becomes um, the, the bonding agent between all these things. And so if you can have the skills to to do that whether you're you know super charismatic or not if you're introverted or extroverted if you're you know um you know if you're a your strengths are in in different categories i think that by cultivating emotional intelligence you can identify the ways to best leverage your skills and talents and whatnot and because you're consistently building that awareness and that you have that learning that learning mindset and um and you're thinking about others and, and the impact that you have on others and, and whatnot so i guess i would lean into the characteristic of being emotionally intelligent for that one so um i think you could make arguments for other other uh characteristics but that would be the, the one that i would pick All right, those were some amazing questions. And um, that wraps up this section on leadership performance and productivity for management 300. I hope you enjoyed the profcast. I hope that you're enjoying these shorter versions um, with uh, you know between two to four minutes per, per question and addressing those. So um, keep, uh, keep up the great work with your awesome content because that's driving the content for our profcast and, um, and really making us all think. So thank you so much. And I hope you are staying safe and healthy.